Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Genesis 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's going to be one in the pew in front of you. Um, and we're going to be talking about marriage today. Um, as always, as we're walking through the book of Genesis, there's a lot going on, and there's just not enough time for, uh, or ability for me to cover it all. So if you have questions at any point during the message today, you can text your question to that phone number on the screen, and it'll, it'll be placed on the screen from time to time as we go, and I'll try to interact with some of those questions at the end. Um, most of us statistically either are or will be married at some point in our lives, although that number in this country is decreasing. In the 1970s, 9% of adults were unmarried, in 2018, it's up to 35%. There's a lot of reasons for this that we're not gonna get into, but in, in general, American society has, has come to see marriage as less important as it used to. But as we've been looking at Genesis and saying like the, the, the book of Genesis is this, this foundational document for how the universe is intended to work, marriage comes up fairly quickly. So there's something about this marriage relationship that serves as one of the bedrocks for the functioning of the cosmos. So we're going to talk about it today. If you're single in the room this morning, please don't tune out. Um, some of you were married at one time and you're no longer married. Some of you are not yet married, but you will be in the future. Uh, and some of you are maybe called to a life of singleness, and you will never be married. But regardless, uh, you may be called upon to give biblical counsel to a married person. And additionally, this is a real foundational topic, both for the way the world works and for how we understand our relationship with Christ. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. So we're going to start in verse 18 this morning. We're just going to kind of walk through the passage. Verse 18, well, to back up, we remember last week that, that God made the garden, uh, this, this place where he was going to have his presence flow out of into the whole earth. And he set up the man, the Adam, as the representative of his presence, the high priest of Eden who would work and watch over the garden and cultivate it. He set up this system, this beautiful place and, and with, with food and, and atmosphere and all the things that the man needed. But then in verse 18, we read, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So this is the very first time in the story of the Bible where God says something is not good. Remember, all through chapter one, day one, it's good. Day two, it's good. Day three, it's good. Over and over and over again, all these things that I'm making are good. But now something is not good. And remember, we've been talking about creation as a system of functions, not a system of materials. God is making things and putting them in order in a way that they would work for human flourishing. And so by saying this is not good, God is saying that creation is not working correctly. 
the man's mandate to subdue and rule and serve and preserve the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, cannot be done. It is not good for the man to be alone. But the crazy thing is God's there, right? Of all the people in all of human history, Adam has the closest connection to God that anyone has ever experienced. We're going to read in a later chapter that God walked through the garden in the cool of the day. God is Adam's constant companion. But God says, Adam, you're still alone. And as a, as a brief aside, this, this is going to relate to the marriage relationship, but it also just relates to being human, right? We need other people. We need one another. Community in God's people is necessary. By saying it's not good for the man to be alone, we recognize that we can't fulfill our role as image bearers by ourselves. And this is going to apply to marriage, but it applies to all of us as Christians. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, and they were talking about how America is the most individualistic society in the history of the world. They take a, a survey of people in different nations every couple years, and they've got a bunch of questions that they use to, to gauge how collectivistic or individualistic a nation is. And, and it's not a good or a bad thing, but America consistently scores the highest for individualism. Of all people on the planet, we are most likely to believe that we do not need other people. It's part of our founding story, right? Like, I'm sick of all these English people, I'm gonna go to Massachusetts where I can be by myself. I'm sick of all these people that came to Massachusetts with me, I'm gonna go to Wisconsin and live in the woods by myself. And we keep going and keep going and keep going until we reach the ocean and realize finally we have to live with people. And then we move to Athol. <laughs> no, no, sorry, no shade on Athol. But we, we think we can do it alone. And we come into the church Seeing the experience of the people of God as something that we can add to our individual lives and just make it one of the balls that we are juggling. This graphic is an awesome little clip art thing that I found in a book I was reading. But notice, like, he's, he's just, he's got all these things in the air. His calendar and his work and his coffee and his phone and the church. And he's just kind of, it's one of the things, one of the things that I got to keep up with. But that's not what scripture teaches us. Instead, we are called to be persons in community. This second graphic shows that the church is this hub of relationship, of life, that, spy, that, that spokes out into all of these other areas. God's people are meant to live together in close relationship, and we tackle all the responsibilities of ruling and reigning from within our identity as the people of God. And th those of us that are tempted to shrink our spiritual lives to be just me and Jesus, we are walking into a situation that is not 
good. We need one another. And God says the Adam, that the human needs someone, someone that he calls a helper corresponding to him. God says the man needs an equal. This is the major problem here. God, the creator of the universe, Yahweh Elohim, who made everything and is omniscient and omnipotent and powerful and amazing in every possible way, is a very different being than the human, the human made from dust. And God says, I, you need somebody that's like you. The Hebrew word for helper is the word ezer. The word ezer is either used as a description of a military force in the Old Testament, or it's ascribed to God himself. And this is really important because if you read this passage and you envision Adam needing a secretary, you envision, you know, Adam, he, he's, a, he's a responsible, capable man, and there's just a couple things that are falling through the cracks in this whole ruling and reigning thing, and he maybe needs somebody to keep the book work up and empty the trash and do things odds, odds and ends here to help out. This is not what the text is communicating. The helper is not lesser is not weaker and is not unnecessary. The helper is absolutely needed to accomplish the work. What the Bible is saying is that the man cannot do it by himself. And this is one of the reasons why I think Paul calls singleness a gift. If you have a supernatural gift of singleness, then you're way more competent than the rest of us. You can get stuff done in a way that married people just can't. This is not speaking at all of the woman's weakness. If anything, it's speaking of the man's weakness. We built our house last year, and I am a very individualistic person. I, I like to work hard. I like to work by myself. I like to get stuff done, and I... Um, did a lot of things by myself. But then we had to put up the soffits. You know what soffits are? They're the, the, the part that goes under the roof line that sticks out from the side of the house. And our soffits are about 24 inches wide and 16 feet long, they're about a quarter of an inch thick. And they go up like 12 feet in the air. And I could not do it. I just, I, I literally could not put these things up. I could stand on a ladder on one end and hold up one side of the soffit, but being a quarter of an inch thick, it would just snap in half because it's 16 feet long. I needed another person on the other side of that to hold it up or the job just would not get done. And I don't know about you, but, but that hits me hard. The emotional feeling of inadequacy, like, man, I wish I could do everything by myself, but I can't. I need other people. And that's what God is telling Adam, you need another person. 
You need a helper. You need a helper corresponding to you. The, cor the word corresponding uh, is a funny word. It's a compound word that means like and opposite at the same time. Complementary. John Walton coins the phrase counterpartner to describe this word. Because see, men and women, they share their humanity, but they live it out through very different perspectives. Men need the perspective of women. Husbands need the wisdom of their wives. Verse 19, so what does God do? God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So God isn't playing matchmaker here. God's not going, I wonder if the elephant would work. He knows none of these animals are an equal helper for the man. But he's getting Adam to make the realization for himself. And I think this is, this is so true for so many of us. God could just tell us something true about ourselves or about our relationships or our sin, but we just don't believe it. It takes walking through a process to actually learn something. How many of you are like that? You know that stove, it's hot. Is it, is it really hot? I, I should check. Oh yeah, it's hot. Now I know. Some of us are in places of pain or struggle or frustration, not because we have sinned and are being punished, but simply because we're not going to grow in our understanding of God and ourselves without experiential knowledge. And so when you find yourself in that place of like, what is going on here? Learn to ask the question, what am I supposed to be learning? What is God teaching me? And don't be surprised if the answer is simple. The year after we got married, my wife and I uh, partnered with my parents to open a childcare center in Post Falls. We'd never done that before, but we built a giant building and hoped that it would be filled with children. And it eventually was. But I didn't get a paycheck for like a year. And throughout that process, we really learned to trust in God for our finances. And see, I knew that. I'd read the Bible. We could trust God. He provides for us. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, whatever that means. But the experience of having to live day by day, not, not having a steady paycheck, taught me that lesson of dependence on God in the realm of money in a way that just thinking about it never would have. And so God has Adam name all the animals. See what you find. And at the end of that process, no helper was found corresponding to him. So verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman 
and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. So there's a really convoluted history of translation of this word rib here. If you've ever wondered, like the rib is kind of a weird, weird idea. Every other time this word is used in the Old Testament, it refers to the side of a building, most often a temple. And so rib is a really odd translation. And we've kept it in our English Bibles because it was in older English Bibles and we're familiar with it. But some commentators envision Adam literally being split in half in this process. The whole side of the man is taken off and made into the woman. The woman is made from the same substance as the man. Adam says, finally, someone like me. And God presents the woman to the man. This is a marriage ceremony. As someone with two young daughters, I'm fascinated by arranged marriage. In our country, the divorce rate hovers around 50%. Among individuals that have arranged marriages in the United States, the divorce rate is about 4%. In the country of India, where 90% of marriages are arranged, the divorce rate is 1%. Now, caveat that there are a lot of bad arranged marriages and there's abuse that goes on in child brides and stuff. There are also a lot of faithful people that arrange their lives in that way by letting their parents pick a spouse for them. Oftentimes, meeting them for the first time at the altar. I don't want to advocate too hard for arranged marriages, but in our country, we have a view of marriage that is wholly dependent on romance and passion. The pursuit of a lover makes your heart pound and creates all kinds of amazing feelings and chemical reactions in your brain. But what happens when that stops or changes? Marriage built exclusively on the spark of romantic attraction is a hugely modern thing. If you're a Jane Austen fan, um, we're Jane Austen fans in my house. Every single story from that time period, late 1800s, early 1900s, involves the young woman who is being offered opportunities to marry because of station in life or financial prospects or family ties. And she stands up and says, no, I want to marry for love. And all of us Americans go, that's right. You need to marry for love. But if that's how you're building your relationship exclusively, you're probably gonna be unprepared when those feelings fade. And I wonder if that's why arranged marriages have so much lower divorce rates because the premise upon a couple getting married is not that, man, this guy's so great and oh, she's so attractive and, and we're gonna do this thing together. It's like, no, I've made a commitment for the sake of my family for the sake of my future, for the sake of my children to be, that I'm gonna enter into this covenant with this person that I may not even know, but my knowledge of them isn't part of the equation. My commitment to the covenant is the primary 
part of the equation. Marriage is a covenant partnership. It's meant to be built on a lifelong commitment to faithfulness and growth together. And there, there will be passion and excitement, and, and that can be something that's cultivated throughout your marriage. But there's also going to be pain and trial and friction and boredom and longing. And covenant prepares you to deal with those things. Romance does not. So God brings the woman to the man, and I mean, he doesn't have any other options, but he arranges this marriage, and this, he initiates this covenant. Look at verse 24. This, this is the narrator breaking in. This is why man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Again, we're a little bit removed from this culturally, but in the ancient Near East, honoring your parents is the highest possible commitment that you have beneath honoring God. The most important thing in your life is not bringing shame on your parents. And marriage shifts this honor from a man honoring his parents to a man honoring his wife. And this is hard because we all bring our families with us into our marriages, right? We all have, you know, this is how we celebrated Christmas in my house growing up. Or, you know, my mom always cooked the food, and my dad always took out the trash or whatever, and we, we import that into this new life together. And we feel justified by it oftentimes because well, that's, that's all I know. That's what my parents did. But in marriage, a new family is created. Men, your mother does not get a seat at the table in your marriage. Your dad does not get to call the shots in your home. Women, when your husband disappoints you, because he will, your mother's not the place to run to justify yourself. Making an ally in your parents against your spouse is a recipe for disaster. And parents, butt out of your kids' marriages. I, I know, I know we, you think you're being helpful. You think you're being loving. But I get to deal with the large amount of shame and conflict that your advice causes your children. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a part of each other's lives, but just be very careful giving advice to your married kids. Married couples, you are a new family. Doesn't mean your parents and your friends and your siblings can't be a helpful part of your life together, but they cannot be allowed to run the show. The man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. This, this idea of bonding with his wife sticks to his wife. Gordon Wenham says this phrase suggests that both passion and permanence should characterize marriage. 
Uh, old Rabbi Brichto says, every marriage is a union, not a union of two strangers, but rather a reunion, a reconstitution, so to speak, of the primordial unity. Adam is split in half, and then he's brought back together with his wife. And this phrase covers a lot of ground. It is relational, it is financial, it is familial, and it is sexual. It is displayed in the family structure, the sexual relationship, and the children that result from it. Shane Wood calls this union without obliteration. When I, was, uh, when I worked at the Croc Center, the Croc hosts day camps all summer long for kids. And one of the, one of the rules of a ministry to kids at the Croc Center is there is no purpling. Anybody know what that means? You got, you got the, the pink and you got the blue and they come together. That's called purpling. <laughs> Kids, no purpling. Marriage changes you. It binds you to the other person by making the other person a part of you. Think of the two colors. Just two, two pools of paint on a palette right next to each other, slowly mixing. They're still the colors that they are, but in the middle, you can't quite tell where the blue ends and the pink begins and vice versa because there's a new thing going on in the middle. And this is most clearly felt in the sexual relationship between a husband and his wife. And this is why the culture that we live in and the way that we have turned sex into a commodity that we just pursue for pleasure is so destructive. Because when you join with someone like that, they become a part of you and you become a part of them and you cannot easily separate that. The Bible is concerned about our sexual holiness because it will either bring life to our relationships or bring death. Look at verse 25. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So in my house, we say things like, sit like a lady, put your dress down, shut the door when you use the toilet. It's just, just, you know, life advice. We're taught from an early age that there are parts of our bodies that we are supposed to hide. The nakedness of Adam and Eve shows us a relationship where that hiddenness does not apply. This is a, a phrase that we use often in our marriage. Joanna and I talk about being naked and without shame to characterize the relationship that we are aspiring to as a married couple. And it's not just about our physical selves, but our emotional selves, our mental selves, our spiritual selves. It is the goal that we are always working towards. We haven't got there. Next week, spoiler alert, everything's going to come crashing down when sin is introduced into the garden. But even so, in this world of sin as a married couple, we want to get to the place where we are naked and unashamed. 
Married people, what do you hide from your spouse? What thoughts and feelings do you feel shame even thinking about sharing? God's ideal for the marriage relationship is that there would be no barriers, nothing that is closed off from the other, no secret dreams, no secret sins. Marriage is standing naked in front of the other person and saying, this is who I am, all of me, the parts that I love to share and the parts that I don't. Here's the thing about shame. Shame isn't a feeling of disappointment in not meeting a standard. It's a feeling of worthlessness because of that disappointment. I do not have six-pack abs. I am disappointed by that. Now, I know how to get six-pack abs, and I'm not willing to, but I'm still disappointed that I do not have six-pack abs. But I am not shamed by my wife because of that. The marriage relationship is intended to be a place where, there, where everything is known and there is no shame. There are parts of me physically, emotionally, spiritually that I don't like, but that's okay. Joanna gets 100% experience of those things. Some of them she tells me she likes even though I don't like them. And some of them she says, yeah, I don't like them either. But I don't, I don't get to hide them from her. Uh, early, some of you know this story, early on in our marriage, I hid a lot of things from my wife emotionally, uh, a lot of my thought life, a lot of my temptation to sin, a lot of my sexual past, I just, I just didn't talk about. And it was toxic for our marriage. And it was only after God convinced me that I needed to open my heart to her that our marriage was able to grow past that into something that's incredibly fruitful right now. And the thing is, for me personally, it's still a challenge. There are things that come up in my heart regularly that my immediate impulse is to hide. But it's never healthy to hide. The husband and the wife were naked and unashamed. This marriage relationship is foundational to the creation story. It's foundational to most of our lives. It's how our species propagates itself. It's how our society is ordered largely. But it's bigger than that. Look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body." For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ, the church. 
So Paul does this crazy, audacious thing. He connects our relationship as God's people to Jesus through the one flesh union of a married couple. And if you think too much of it, it starts to feel a little scandalous. Christ and his church are in a mutual relationship. He is is the son of God incarnate, but he works, he chooses to work through us. We are his body. the, The phrase, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. The work that Jesus does in the world today is primarily done through his people. But we are indebted to him for his power. The way he has arranged this relationship, we work with one another. While our primary family relationship before may be defined by our parents or our um, other family of origin, after we become Christians, our primary family relationship is defined by our relationship with Christ. We, We leave the life that we had before and we are joined to his people in union with him. And Jesus knows and sees everything about us, but he has no shame for us. He has taken away our shame, our sin, our filth, and he loves us unconditionally. Just like a husband and wife entering into marriage and and being changed by that union, as we enter into relationship with Jesus, when we become part of the bride of Christ, we will be changed. His life will mix with ours. There will be purpling. Marriage transforms us into different people. Salvation does the same thing. lastly, you can't do it alone. Life outside of union with Christ is not good. And, and maybe some of you aren't Christians today. You, you recognize, like, I don't have this relationship with Jesus. I don't, I don't have this union with Christ. I haven't given him my sin and my shame and come to him to renew my life. You are being invited today to turn from your sin and to be married to Christ to be made part of a new family and transformed by union with him. Marriage as a human union is important to God because it's a foundational part of how the universe works, but more importantly, because it's a picture of the love of Christ for his people. And as we faithfully walk in a covenant of marriage with one another, those of us that are married, we are a example, we're not the only example, but we are a example of the love of God for his people. We're going to look at a couple questions. If you have a question, feel free to text it in. Oh, cool, we have an off-topic question, great. 
This is off topic, but in Genesis 2, why does it say that God formed out of the animals of the dust after Adam was made? Is there a particular reason why creation is described differently in the second chapter than in the first? Yeah, we talked about this a little bit last week, but uh, my opinion, and it's not the only opinion, there are, there are people that disagree with me, but um, I think a good case can be made for the creation story in chapter 1 and the creation story in chapter 2 to be different episodes. Um, a lot of scholars think that all of chapter 2 is inside of day 6 in chapter 1. I think there's problems with that. Uh, one, there's a lot of things out of order. Two, uh, envisioning Adam and naming all the animals in a single day is hard for me. Um, but I think the biggest issue, and again, we talked about it last week, and if you wanted more of this, you can check out the podcast. In verse 4 of chapter 2, it says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. That word records is the Hebrew word toledot, which happens 10 times in the book of Genesis. Every time it happens in the book of Genesis, it's introducing a new part of the story. These are, this is the generation of Adam. This is the generation of Seth. These are the generations of Abraham and so on and so on. And so for the generations of the heavens and the earth to be introduced in chapter 2, I would argue that we are seeing a uh, next episode of what God is doing, specifically in the garden and the land surrounding it and not in the world as a whole. I know that was, that was a quick answer, but any other questions? Anybody have any questions that they feel like they want to ask without texting? And raise your hand and ask a question. Makes my job easier. Okay. Marriage is hard stuff. I know those of you that are married would attest to that. Um, I would just encourage you if you're in a place where your marriage is, is not, not the ideal, seek out help. Find other brothers and sisters that can walk with you through that. Find a, a good Christian counselor that can walk with you through that. Um, marriage is worth fighting for in our day and age. It's one of the uh, lifelong covenant marriage is one of the ways that the church stands out as different in a world that is so um, relationally and sexually uh, crazy right now. And... Uh, be connected to the people of God and allow that connection to um, inform your marriages. We're going to take communion. And we take communion every week, but the, the communion meal is an illustration of the union we have with Christ. As the, the husband and the wife, they become one flesh, they become united. The communion meal is this union with Jesus. We take the bread and we take the cup into our bodies. We are one flesh with Jesus through his work on the cross. And now that's not, it's, it's, it's a symbolic ritual, but it's pointing to the reality that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, lives in you as Christian and your life is bound up with Christ's. We take communion as a people. We don't, you don't just take communion at home on a Thursday. Communion is a 
communal meal and experience of God's people together and the recognition that we are Christ's and Christ is ours. So we're going to sing a little bit more. The communion table will be open. Take some bread and a cup of either wine or juice for your conscience. Back to your seat and just reflect on that. Is your, are you a married person? Is, is your relationship not what you would like it to be? Not what it should be? What are the ways that God is speaking to you? Are you, um, are you a single person? And, and maybe, maybe you desperately want to be married and that's not what God has given you right now. Just do business with the Lord working through that pain. Maybe your marriage is great. Take some time to be thankful for that. But ultimately, take some time to recognize that you are one with Christ as a member of his body. And the love that he gives you, the sin that he forgives, the way that he looks at you without shame, knowing all of the dark parts of your heart, is something to rejoice in this morning. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.